Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. Derek Van Riper here with Matt Medica. It is Monday, February 24th. On this episode, we are looking for discounted sources of each hitting category. So we're looking for players outside the top 200 overall in ADP, capable of helping you make up ground, whether that be in homers, steals, average, run production, or some combination, of course, of those categories. This podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, pretty much anywhere that you want to listen to podcasts. And if you're listening on a platform that allows you to leave us a rating and review, we would really appreciate it if you took 10 seconds and and dropped us a rating and review. Uh, Before we get started, I want to clarify the ADPs we're going to use today, at least the ones I'm going to reference uh, from my outline, are from the NFBC's online championship drafts since February 10th. So if you go to that ADP page That's the filter I turned on just to kind of get a similar format. Uh, Narrowing it down a little bit gets you a better feel for what's really happening in these last couple of weeks. Uh, Matt, as we get started, how's it going? How was your weekend? Oh, the weekend was good. I'm getting really excited because we're getting very close. I'm actually wrapping up my preseason drafts. I know everything's preseason, but for what I consider preseason drafts before we go live in mid-March, uh, finishing up my final draft champions. It's a big one. Uh, my Tout Wars draft and hold. And Saturday night is the last one. It's the first auction I will do. It's one of my favorite preseason drafts. It's an auction draft champion. So it's 23 auction players and then 27 players in the draft champions format. Like it'll go snake after that. So looking forward to that and just looking forward to. Getting all my research I've done for the past few months, finalizing it, you know, going over. If I'm going to lose, it's not going to be because I wasn't prepared. I will tell you that right now. And just to piggyback on what you said about how you're using the online championship ADP from February 10th. Currently right now, I'm in in sync with you on that. I've been using the 13th to the 23rd. And the reason I'm using online championships, even though it's a 12-team league when I play in mostly 15s, is these are uh, redrafts that are being played out. It's not a draft champions. It's a different animal, a different format. Those ADPs are getting a little stale too. So you want fresh ADPs. ADP is like milk. It has expiration dates. But whatever format you're playing, whether it's the cut line online championship or whatever, even draft champions and use that. But that's the best way to do it, in my opinion. ADPs are like milk. Never really thought of it that way before, but that definitely makes some sense. You want to make sure you're looking at things that are relevant to the room that you Mm -hmm. might walk into and narrowing it down is one way to do that. Uh, Let's talk about cheap power first. And I'm going to emphasize this one more time. Like We're going to get through some players in this episode who don't fit into one specific category. I might have labeled them as sources of run production, but they're obviously going to contribute some power there as well. But these are guys that you think of really as power-first players. The first one that I wanted to bring up on this show was Hunter Renfro. ADP just outside the top 250 overall right now, sitting around 259 since February 10th. He's 22nd in ISO since 2017. If you go to Fangraphs, do a multi-year leaderboard, and set the minimum plate appearances to 500 over the last three years. Hunter Renfro, 22nd in isolated slugging. The real question with him is, does he get enough playing time to be at least average in the other categories? Because we're talking about a right-handed hitter 
who's done a lot of damage against lefties during his career in San Diego. And now he goes to a very deep Tampa Bay team that has a series of different options to play at both corner outfield spots. So where do you fall on Renfro? Is he an undervalued source of cheap power or is he a guy that could become a bit of a headache player despite having that overwhelming skill? Well, if you ha- if you play in strictly weekly leagues, where it's not like the NFBC where you could split it Monday through Thursday, Friday to Sunday, he's less of an attractive option for me. Uh, personally, I like Randall Gritchuk, who goes maybe 30 picks or so later than Renfro, because I think Gritchuk, as long as he's healthy, is going to get the at-bats, and he's going to have that playing time in Toronto. But as you mentioned with Renfro, I mean... His fly ball and hard hit percentage is almost at 50% each. It's like 48, 47%. You know, but he is a he is a split player. I mean, against left-handed pitching, he strikes out 23% of the time. Versus right-handed, he strikes out 34% of the time. Against left-handed pitching, he has an OPS over 900. Against right-handed pitching, it's like 730. And even with his uh, WRC plus. You know, he's a he's an above average player versus lefties, one twenty seven, and he's a below average player versus righties. So, you know, in an NFBC style league where you can split that up, play the matchup, because you know Tampa's gonna do that. At least that's what I'm assuming. There is value here. I just rather have the guy with the similar skill set that's gonna have the at bats this season as long as he's healthy and doesn't have a Epic uh, collapse, it'll be Randall uh, Randall Grychuk. Yeah, I mean, I think with Grychuk, you're right. He's going to probably play a lot of center field for the Jays, too. So they kind of need him defensively just based on the makeup of that roster. I, I like those skills quite a bit. He's not an exciting player, but he comes in and just does his job and piles up those counting stats year over year. And I think a lot of the other players that we're going to talk about, several first basemen, actually, are very similar, where they're just going to show up every day. They're going to hit probably in the middle third of their respective lineups. It might be a case where you're taking on a lot of batting average risk, but you are getting the potential for 30-plus home runs from most of these players. Renato Nunez is that player in a nutshell. I love that he's in a very hitter-friendly environment in Baltimore. You know, Ryan Mountcastle doesn't have anything left to prove at AAA, so there's one more guy who's going to come up and probably play one of the corner infield spots. But I think Nunez, Mountcastle, Trey Mancini, and Chris Davis, who is still there for now, they can coexist. I mean, Mancini can play a little bit in left field if needed. Uh, They've got the DH spot. What do you make of Renato Nunez? I mean, do you see him as a pretty stable, cheap option to fill a corner spot? Uh, Yeah, no, I mean, he fits that description, you know, and... If, if the ball's going to stay the same in that park, I mean, when you're looking at everything, you're looking at the park, it's advantageous to him. Uh, he's on a team that we all expect to be really bad, so he should get the at-bats. As you said, they can split it up several different ways. You, you can move people around. I get it. He's not a guy that I've gone with. There's just been other names I preferred. Yeah, I haven't really ended up with uh, Renato Nunez much myself at this point. Uh, but you do look at him as a guy that has real power, too. I think he goes beyond the rabbit ball. I think there's a, a ton of like fly ball lean in his profile, though, so there's really not a lot of upward mobility with that batting average. Let's talk about one of last year's biggest disappointments. Jesus Aguilar, you know, he was a big part of the Brewers lineup in 2018, fell out of favor in 2019, ended up getting traded for Jake Faria in July, didn't stick with the Rays, 
the plate discipline was actually better last year than it had been in 2018. The K rate came down a little bit. The walk rate ticked up slightly. But Aguilar didn't fit on two different playoff teams. Now he ends up in Miami. And to begin the season, first base is all his. They have a prospect there, Lewin Diaz, who might not be that far away from taking on a prominent role. I didn't think Aguilar could really be a drain in batting average. 236 last year was really bottoming out for him in that category. Where do we go from here? I mean, this is a guy that hit 35 home runs, drove in 108 runs, and scored 80 in just 566 plate appearances in 2018. And now he's outside the top 300 overall. Well, we, I like to talk about opportunity being everything, and he's going to get that opportunity. I'm just actually betting on a another player on the Marlins, uh, and that's Garrett Cooper. You know, I, I think he's a better player than Aguilar. I wasn't, I had no Aguilar last year. It just seemed too risky to me. I know the season before, you know, he catapulted a lot of teams. So not a guy for me. Uh, if I'm wrong on him, that's fine. There's other options here. Like I said, I think Garrett Cooper, I'd like to really see him get that uh, chance to produce, whether it's in the outfield or first base, because he has that dual, dual eligibility. Yeah, that extra flexibility is really nice. And since Nunez doesn't have it, Aguilar doesn't have it, the next guy we're going to talk about, Eric Thames, doesn't have it either. This comes down to a philosophy of how you build your roster. I mean, Eric Thames is, I think, pretty clearly a big side platoon player. He leaves the Brewers. It goes to the Nationals. So you're going to have to cycle him in and out of the lineup a lot. You kind of need those twice-weekly lineup changes like the NFBC has if you're going to use him, or it has to be a deeper league, like an NL-only sort of format. I was really surprised to see this, putting the rundown together, though. Thames has the 11th highest ISO among players with at least 500 plate appearances since the start of 2017. He is leaving one of the most hitter-friendly environments for a left-handed power hitter by getting out of Milwaukee, but we've seen the recent research from Eno Saris pointing to Nationals Park as one that's become a lot more conducive to power than earlier park factors had suggested. What's your interest level in Thames, knowing that you do have to mix and match and actually use another roster spot frequently if you're going to try and rely on him for cheap production on a corner? Uh, I mean, at his price, he does have some interest. He has that, you know, as you said, he's he's going to have a role with the Nationals. And, you know, it's, you, as you mentioned, his ISO, it, the, he's been played correctly. Because when he's played versus left-handed pitching over the last three seasons, he's had 97, 27, and 50 at-bats, totaling six, one, and two homers over those last three years, with a batting average of 182, 185, and 200. So he he does not face left-handed hitting, which is the correct way to go about it here. So another guy later on, my preference here is I'd rather gamble on Justin Smoke in Miller Park and go that route. But Thames is still interesting to me because I know what he is, and he's used advantageously. He can be used advantageously in the NFBC format. Yeah, I'm with you on smoke. I mean, I think there's a perception that Toronto is more hitter-friendly than it actually is. It's closer mm-hmm. to a neutral park. And year over year, I think it's because of the Jose Bautista breakout and Pete Carnacion and Josh Donaldson. Like Because that team was built to hit a lot of home runs, there's this confusion about what Toronto really is as a home park. What this reminds me of a few years back when the Brewers signed Adam Lind, it's not exactly the same. I don't think Smoke can hit for that kind of an average. 
But I think, as you saw with things and stuff, his uh, his left-handed power w- w- will play. He'll be able to. I think they basically found Thames for a little bit less money than they would have had to pay Thames if they had exercised this option. That's what the Brewers mm-hmm. did, and, and kind of betting on that at a similar price for fantasy purposes makes sense. But it's the same kind of setup that it is with Eric Thames, where I don't expect to see Smoke play against lefties. He can switch hit, but they'll play Ryan Braun at first base or Ryan Healy or somebody else on that roster. They're going to have a right-handed option to cover that spot, so... Smoke's not going to play more than Thames, but he's in a better, even more friendly hitter environment than Thames at this point. How about Dan Vogelbach? I mean, he's similar price. 359 is the ADP over the last two weeks. Did the league figure him out in the second half, or do you think there's a counter adjustment that he can make and enable him to be kind of a overlooked option on the corner? Well, I think he's definitely going to have to make that correction. He's been known for his bat. We know the power is real. But, you know, with Evan White getting the contract, he and he made a great play yesterday in, uh, in, in, the, in the field. I, Vogelback, to me, is not really on my radar. There's other ways I'm going to look to go. I get it. I know some people, you know, they see it. They see that power that he's got. Like he's got a following. Put it that way. They're all Vogelback backers, but I'm really not one of them. Yeah, I'm not really there either. I've thrown the dart and draft in a hold once or twice, but I, I don't see him as a guy that in 12 and, and 15 team leagues who I actually want to have locked into a roster spot. I think if you draft him, it's because you saw something in the early season schedule, or you think he's going to play a lot right away. But he's probably someone who's going to fall off the roster. At mm-hmm. some point, like the mixed league roster, not necessarily the Mariners roster. Let's talk about Mike Zanino for a second. He's bottomed out in terms of batting average. I don't know if it can get much worse. <laughs> the Rays didn't do a lot to replace Travis Darno. They've got a younger catcher, Michael Perez, who's the backup at this point. I'm looking at Zanino, and I know you have to offset the 201 average in 2018, 207 average in 2016, potentially with a a higher average, high volume regular. But if I'm going to take a batting average hit, I want that to be a lower volume position. And catcher is a lower volume position. The power is still pretty good. I think he's got at least 15 home runs as a floor with room for more than that. It just says a lot to me that the Rays didn't do much to fix the depth behind him. So what do you think about Mike Zanino as a cheap option if you're punting at catcher or you're trying to scramble for some extra power from that position? Yeah, if you're either punting or you have that uh, first catcher who's, you know, a a good catcher, has, you know, for a catcher some decent batting average. The power is going to be there. I think the playing time is obviously going to be there. The batting average will not be. And I think maybe Kevin Smith, uh, formerly from the Angels fame, <laughs> has a shot at being the backup as well. I know he got invited, and he's somebody that I've taken a shot, you know, as like my fourth catcher in draft champions. So, yeah, I mean, look, he has a role, and you're going to need power from that catching position. So maybe it's not the optimal choice, but when it gets razor thin there, you know, he's he's an option I will look at. Yeah, Kevin Smith's not a bad player, by the way. I, there's... Potentially a little more there. He's, he's on the, the wrong side of 30 already, so he's been around for a few years. Turns 32 in June, actually. Uh, but he's had a couple of years where he's been actually above average in the batting average category. He doesn't strike out a lot. 
flashes occasional power. Hasn't slugged over 400 yet in a season, though. So probably does fit more as a backup. And that that's part of the appeal, I think, with Zanino. They just don't really have anybody who I see as completely overtaking him for a large share of the playing time. Let's move on to speed. Gene Segura barely qualifies in terms of falling outside the top 200. ADP right around 205. Gabe Kapler's Phillies didn't run much last year, but Joe Girardi's in charge now, and Segura had a lot of lower body injuries last year that I think may have been the bigger reason for his stolen base decline than Kapler's tendencies as a manager. Segura's also going to move around this season. They've got Didi Gregorius playing shortstop, so I think he played third base over the weekend. He's probably going to play some second base. He's going to move around based on wherever Scott Kingery has to play. And the thing I like about Segura is that aside from offering up stolen bases, He's been really good in the batting average category as well. Over the last three seasons, since the start of 2017, Gene Segura is a 294 hitter. So you're getting cheap batting average and potentially cheap speed from a guy that might become eligible at a second and possibly even a third position sooner rather than later. Yeah, no, that that additional eligibility is very nice. He's a guy that I've targeted you know, this whole preseason. I love getting him here. Uh, I'm going to look back. I'm going to look for a bounce back to previous norms. Uh, 2019 was the season where he snapped six consecutive years of at least 20 stolen bases. Uh, It was the first time he didn't hit 300 since 2015, I believe. So, you know, I I think the floor for his batting average is 280. uh, And I think, you know, 15 is going to be more of the floor for stolen bases. I think 20 is a real possibility. The power, you know, maybe he just gets over double digits, but that's fine. You know, for a a player getting with the eligibility, some speed in a landscape that's, you know, pretty much dried up, I think this is a a really nice player here. I think the floor from what we saw last year is basically a typical Angleton Simmons type season, which at that price isn't going to hurt you. And there's room for him to bounce back, like you said, and, you know, push that stolen base total up closer to 20 again. I think he still has enough speed to actually pull that off. Love getting cheap batting average late. It's a good hitter-friendly park. It's a nice lineup, too, so those counting stats should be there. Here's an old one that people have been, I think, finally down on to the point where I've at least thought about it. Is the price on D. Gordon, ADP at 272 in the last two weeks, is it cheap enough even when you consider that he might be in a part-time role and that he's a zero in the power department, is it cheap enough to actually take the chance on him if you're chasing speed in the later rounds? I mean, if you're chasing it, I guess. Uh, it's just not a target of mine. Uh, I don't really know what role he has. I mean, this team is turning over. Uh, maybe he gets traded a couple months into a team that needs a little help, needs some speed on there or something, but... I, it's just not a player profile. If he's, you know, if if he had a role atop a lineup like he did a few years back and was going to, you know, like his floor was 30 stolen bases and, you know, possibly 40 or more, that's maybe more intriguing, but n- not a guy that I'm really interested in. That's kind of where I'm at, both with Gordon and Gerard Dyson. I know there's a chance that Dyson leads off or at least plays a lot in Pittsburgh, but even for a team that has to manufacture runs and will probably give him plenty of green lights, I still see more of a fourth outfielder. We saw the wheels kind of fall off on him last year. I mean, look at what he did in 452 plate appearances, which was a career-high total for him in Arizona. Dyson ended up hitting 230. 
he had seven home runs, which is a career high, but the rabbit ball was at least part of that. And he stole 30 bases, but it came with just 65 runs scored and 27 RBIs. So especially in the average and RBIs and home runs category, I mean, you're getting below average contributions in at least three categories. If he's not playing every day, he's going to lag in runs. He could end up hitting sixth or seventh in the batting order, even on a bad team. I just think this is a case where cheap speed comes at a steep cost, even when it's discounted the way Dyson is. And outside of NL only leagues, I don't think I can roster him. Yeah, I'm uh, another guy that I have my hesitations with as well. Yeah, she's going to steal 30 bases this year. But, you know, when you put him in your lineup, he needs to, you know, get those stolen bases for you. You're going to lose out on the other categories. And I forget what the number is. You need like a certain amount of home runs per slot, like 27 or something in the mid-20s. So that's going to be a major hit there. I think he's more of a seat warmer guy for the first couple of months. And then the Pirates will, I forget the name of the kid. There's one kid on the Pirates I think that will get that role eventually this year as their starting center fielder. But, uh, yeah, I I know everybody's going crazy because the manager said they're going to run and stuff. Go to Kevin Newman type on that team or something like that over Gerard Dyson. Yeah, I think uh, Jared Oliva is that prospect. <laughs> I, I, I like I like him. I, if he gets the chance to play, he's mm-hmm. a must-add sort of player. He's a good draft and hold target. He's an NL-only reserve. But Dyson, it, we just know what he is at this point. And uh, seat warmer is exactly how I'd see it. I mean, there's a week where maybe your main source of speed is out and you'd like the schedule. Maybe Dyson's got a series against the Mets or something. Pick him up, cheap, <laughs> yes, use him, you play him, ditch him. Yeah, I, I think that's the extent to which you can use him in mixed <laughs> leagues. Just a, a very temporary sort of solution. Uh, the next player we're going to talk about is a guy that I really like, especially at the price. Ender Inciarte. ADP is still around 350. Nick Markakis is probably more of a fourth outfielder to me at this point. So it's Marcelo Zuna, it's Ronald Acuna, and then it's sort of Inciarte and Markakis battling it out for the extra playing time, the extra starting job, and then the other guy of those two is is the fourth outfielder. But with Inciarte, I think you're also getting a chance at some cheap batting average. We don't know exactly what that lineup's going to look like. It could be Ronald Acuna leading off every day, and if that happens, you do have to worry about Inciarte falling to the bottom of the order. Uh, but 246 last season seems a bit fluky. He was hurt for most of the year, only played in 65 games. Maybe there's even a trade possibility here where he ends up on a team that wants some OBP that could actually give him even more playing time than Atlanta could. Uh, what do you think about Inciarte as a cheap speed play? I think he's one of the best uh, values on the draft board right now at his price. I've been talking about this for months, how the Braves' best lineup is with under Inciarte in center field. The Braves are poised team. They're a playoff team. And they're a team looking to win a World Series. And when you have Ozuna in a corner position who's a defensive liability, you know, he really hurts you. You put a guy like Inciarte in center, which makes it better for Ronald Acuna. He's better as a corner outfielder. If you if you draft Acuna number one overall, you'd rather him be in the corner than roaming center field. That's my opinion. And like you said, Mercakis is a fourth outfield type. I think Austin Riley... He's going to battle Camargo for third. Riley could go down, start the season in the minors, get an early promotion if he's hitting well there, and maybe work on some third base work. 
Uh, I know Camargo's in the best shape of his life. I heard that. And he's fully committed to improving himself. But in Ciarte, like you said, he offers you the speed. He has some batting average. And last season, I remember I got him. He got hurt relatively quick after I got him for really nothing. And he looked good that first week or so, week or two that he was around. And then he ripped up his hamstring. So there was that. I was kind of pissed off about that. But yeah, I, I really like this player. Yeah, I just look at Enciarte. I see the same thing you do. It makes a lot more sense to go ahead and just move Acuna to right, play Enciarte in center. Marquecas obviously isn't going to be a plus defender at this stage of his career. He might be passable, but you'd rather optimize defense, help that pitching staff out a little bit, mask the flaws of Ozuna. I, I see Austin Riley as a third baseman at this point. I don't even see him as a threat for, for playing time out there. So he's definitely a guy that I will be loading up on as that price hovers near that range, there's a little bit of room for it to creep up, and I'd still probably be interested in Enciarte. Uh, anybody else on the cheap speed front that's that's caught your eye? I mean, it, it's not always even a player that has done it a lot in the past. Sometimes when you're looking for cheap speed, you're sort of taking a chance on someone finding playing time. I mentioned Jared Oliva before. like He's mm-hmm. probably a couple months away from getting that chance, so he's not a stash guy for most mixed leagues, but... Anybody else you're thinking about who could play more than expected and, and chip in in that category? Uh, if he gets a role, I know he's out of options. I know a friend of the podcast, Scott Jenstat, we have a little thread that goes on between me, him, Vlad, and uh, Rob Silver. And he mentioned that Melvin said he hadn't seen the type of speed that Jorge Mateo offers you know, since like Coco Crisp. He's out of options, so if he got that role, I think you're going to see him really move up the draft board. In a draft champions format, I call him like a mid-30s round draft champions hero, is a Cole Tucker. So I got to think at some point the Pirates give him a realistic opportunity there to see what he can do. And he has stolen bases in the minors. I know sometimes it doesn't translate, but that's his main attribute. So those are guys to monitor. Yeah, Cole Tucker, I think that's a good call. I mean, he was 11 for 14 last year at AAA in about 77 games. If this is a team that needs to run, they're going to do that with young players. And I I think they'd be wise to pair Tucker up with Kevin Newman in the middle infield sooner rather than later. They can move a guy like Adam Frazier around to multiple spots. Like they got to figure out long-term what they have in some of their young players. Uh, They also have Brian Hayes coming up at third base at some point. He runs at third base, which is a bit rare. It's, It's hard to find speed there. Not a guy I would necessarily draft, but someone I would keep an eye on. But I think your Jorge Mateo call is dead on. I mean, it's just a question of whether he's going to play in Oakland or if he's going to end up on waivers and play somewhere else. There's a good enough chance that he doesn't make the team, but that somebody else gives him playing time that I will draft Jorge Mateo in a 15-team league in one of my final rounds. I I think there's enough of a potential payoff there. If it's not going to work out and there's not playing time, he's an easy early season drop. Yeah, no, I'm I'm with you on that. And uh, shout out to Scott for uh, for, for that text. That's a wild position battle, by the way. Second base in <laughs> Oakland. Like I just I feel like I don't have a very good read on it at all because they have so many options. The one thing that I think I see with it is that Sheldon Noisy, who offers a lot of power from the right side, he has minor league options left, so he's not going to open the year with the job. Even if he ends up finishing the year with the job, they're gonna have to give Barreto or Mateo, possibly Tony Kemp and a platoon some opportunities before Sheldon Noisy really gets that chance. Let's talk about cheap run production because some of these guys do multiple things. They hit for power. In some cases, they even run a little bit as well. Avisail Garcia goes to Milwaukee 
ADP at 219 over the last two weeks. He's sneaky good with average, too. He's hitting 288 since the start of 2017, and now he's in the most hitter-friendly home park of his career. Are you worried about playing time in Milwaukee? You know, Lorenzo Cain should play a lot in center. Yelich making the move over to the left, obviously an everyday player there. Ryan Braun at his age could be more of a part-time guy, and they've talked about playing him some at first base. So do you trust Garcia to play enough to invest in him as, you know, like a 15th round pick? I actually do. And again, we'll go back to the NFBC format where you could split it up. And he's, look, he's one injury away from a full-time job. And as you stated, the the park factors that we've been talking about for uh, Miller Park and what he's been able to do over the last couple of years. You know, the, I, I know StatCast is all the rage. Look at that sprint speed. But, you know, the power, last three years, 18, 19, and 20 home runs. And that's what, you know, that's never, you know, he's not a guy that everybody thinks. He's only played, I think, the most 136 games over these last three years. So I think this is a profitable player at the position. And uh, someone who could easily fall into a full-time role. So, yes, I'm in. Yeah, I think the key here, too, is that when he plays, which should be a lot, Garcia is going to hit in the heart of that order, too. So you're going to get runs. You're going to get RBIs. He is a bit of a stat cast darling. Kind of surprising that more teams weren't interested, or at least more teams weren't linked to him during the offseason. The next guy we're going to talk about, Justin Upton, is... It's it's kind of an unknown as to just how healthy he really is at this point. But if he's healthy, if his knee is actually truly healthy, we're talking about a player who in 2018 hit 30 homers, scored 80 runs, drove in 85 runs, and chipped in eight steals while hitting 257. I mean, that was a non-rabbit ball year where you got contributions in every category and a batting average that did not hurt you. I really like this setup, especially since the Angels didn't end up trading for Jock Peterson. If Peterson were there and they were going to bring up Joe Adele, you'd have to wonder, like, okay, is Justin Upton trending into that part of his career where he's not going to be the high-volume player he was when he was younger? But I think there's a chance that we get a full bounce back from Upton, and if he repeats 2018, he's an absolute steal at the price he's at right now. Yes, and a player I've missed on uh, several times but as you said, there's a lot to like here outside of last season where, you know, he was injured and stuff started late. He's hit 30 homers in three previous season. Uh, he's part of that 40-40 club with the fly balls and hard hit percentage and with a prime spot in that lineup to produce runs. So, and, you know, if you, if you I, I, I think the opportunities are there for him to uh, really beat this ADP. So, I mean, how is a factor, but you're going to have some spring training to see him out there, see how, you know, how he's looking and stuff. So barring health issues, I think he's somebody you should be extremely interested in. I think he's been on the field just like everybody else to begin spring training too. So by all indications, he's on the same schedule as his teammates at this point after that uh, knee injury really plagued him a year ago. Let's talk about Brian Anderson for a second. Yet another Marlin and a guy who's kind of a weirdly popular sleeper in some circles. I think he's okay. Like I think he's probably a league average hitter or maybe even a tick better. But I see more of a, a short-term fixture in terms of his ability to stay in the heart of the order. I think as this team gets younger, as some of their prospects are ready, 
Brian Anderson's role is going to become a lot less important. It's going to be more of like a number six type hitter, a guy that might even lose some playing time at some point down the road. For 2020, though, he looks pretty stable. What do you think about Brian Anderson? Uh, I tweeted a couple of months ago, if you owned Brian Anderson, I'm assuming you're buying up all the shares for 2020. Like you said, all I really care about is 2020. I don't care from beyond that. Uh, I think he's got a profile that uh, it's really something that can, if he can take a next step, it's really going to pay off a windfall of riches for you for where you're getting him at. The third base outfield eligibility is very nice. He's a guy we might talk about later, uh, going just a few picks apart from like a Geo Urshela. I'd rather have Brian Anderson every time over him. So I'm I'm a big fan of his. I'm one of the guys that, you know, is really banking on Anderson to be that guy. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple things in, in Anderson's favor. The biggest is, is playing time and, and lineup position too. Like with Urshela, we just don't know how often he's going to have to sit, and when he plays, he's probably going to be quite a bit lower in the batting order, even though he's a part of a better lineup and in a better park. So I, I could see that that Anderson over Urshela call being the right one for sure. It's interesting, too, the projection systems over at Fangraphs are pretty consistent with Brian Anderson. They're all between 72 and 77 RBIs. Actually, Zips has them at 68, but with less playing time. So if you adjust playing time, 70 RBIs seems expected. 20, 21 home runs is pretty normal across the board. And mid to upper 70s in terms of runs scored. I mean, that's just a nice player, a guy that that does everything and, and doesn't hurt you in batting average. So uh, there's also the possibility that some of those young bats do come up this year and make the supporting cast better along the way. So I, I understand why people like him. I don't think I'm going to be as sad as some people will be if I miss out, though, because there's some other options that I have waiting behind him who I think could be just as good. How about 37-year-old Shinsu Chu <laughs> as one of those options? Uh, he's kind of settled in now as a 260s guy with a high OBP, 20 home runs every year, good run scored totals, at least 83 runs scored in each of the last three seasons, 15 for 16 as a base dealer last year as well. I mean, I, I don't know if we can rely on that much longer given the age that I mentioned before, but I still think Shinsu Chu can return a profit is there anything you've seen that makes you think the wheels are going to fall off? We've talked about the ballpark. The new park in Arlington is not going to be as hitter-friendly as the old one because they put a roof on it. You're going to have climate-controlled games when you would have had 90-degree humid, great-hitting conditions before. But I still think Shinsu Chu is a good player capable of returning a profit at that price. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think that needs to be said. The park you know, should, should play less... Uh, hitter wise, I mean, you just have to assume that if they're going to have the, you know, if they, it's not going to be seven, it's not going to be ninety degrees at seven p.m. every night. So that should, you know, that should hurt a little. But I, I think if you're looking at a guy that's going to hit, you know, high teens and homers, steal your double digits on the base pads. I mean, why is he going to stop running if he was fifteen or sixteen last year? I'm not saying he's still in fifteen, but I think like that ten eleven is definitely attainable. So he's a guy that, you know, and I'm pretty much an ageist. I really don't like drafting older players. I don't care how good you've been. I just really don't like doing it. But he's at his price, I'm still interested. 
I'm with you though on Chu. The price is so low, Matt. If it goes wrong, you can cut him. It's not going to hurt you that badly. And I just I don't see any warning signs. I, I know age is a factor. You worry about injuries, but that's a pretty nice track record of staying healthy with at least 146 games played each of the last three seasons. And, and things aren't really that much more crowded with regards to the corner outfield and, and DH spot in Texas either. I mean, a healthy Joey Gallo maybe puts a little pressure on the Rangers to give Chu more days off, but I think they can make it work for him yet again. Let's talk about a guy that the fantasy community really doesn't seem to like all that much, but I, I just I see the projections every year. He always comes up kind of as a, a value relative to ADP. It's Eric Hosmer. And it's hard to believe, but he's only entering the third year of that eight-year contract with the Padres, unless he opts out after 2022, but uh, I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> what do you think about Hosmer, though? I mean, 22 home runs last year, it's definitely more than I would have expected. 99 RBIs, 72 runs scored. He's bottomed out with a 253 batting average, if you look at the overall track record going back to 2013. That was in 2018, where he had that low, hit 265 last year. The K-rate's been ticking up a little bit these last two seasons, so maybe there's a little bit of skills erosion happening. But in year three of an eight-year contract, I don't really see the Padres starting to scale back his playing time just yet. So I think he's pretty safe, at least for run production, even if there's not a lot there ceiling-wise in the power department. Yeah, I don't think anybody goes into the draft wanting to take Eric Hosmer, but (laughs) that contract is definitely going to secure his playing time. He, I'm going to assume he's going to continue to bat like a leader, uh, excuse me, a uh, cleanup in that lineup. And four out of the last five years, he's driven in 93 or more runs. So, you know, it's not ideal. Not somebody you get excited about, but he's pretty much going to hit 20 homers. You're assuming maybe driving 90 with a 260 batting average. It could be worse. First base to me, after Hoskins really kind of falls off. Uh, so he's a guy that, you know, on my draft champion teams, I really like him because at-bats are so crucial there. Knowing the guy's going to play almost every day uh, really helps. So as much as there's nothing exciting, he has value in that he'll be there every day. Boring, but he'll be there. Yeah, just a reminder of how important playing time really is, though, I think when you start to see Eric Hosmer's counting stats year over year. Uh, Next player is someone I do like, A.J. Pollock, going right around the same time. 266 is the ADP. Yeah, the depth chart is crowded, and he looked like he was going to be really sneaky when Jock Peterson was Anaheim-bound as a result of that flurry of deals the Dodgers were going to make when they were first reported to have acquired Mookie Betts. Of course, that part of the the, the deal fell apart because of the holdup with the Betts deal. But nevertheless, A.J. Pollock, a guy that just one off-season ago signed a big contract with the Dodgers, is there. And I I know we're talking about massive injury problems in the track record. Some of them are really fluky, but there's power. There's a little bit of speed. Batting average, it's kind of like the Hosmer situation where you look at it and say, well, it's not really going to get worse than the 250s. We like the lineup a lot. I mean, the Dodgers are going to score a ton of runs. It's really just a question of playing time. So do you think Pollock can play enough to be a nice source of value at that price? I mean, look, this is a player I've always liked and I've gotten burned a lot of times on him, if I'm, if I'm being honest. Uh, just The playing time right now is not ideal. I mean, as long as Peterson's around, 
He should be on the strong side. I mean, he's coming off what? Peterson's coming off a 36 homer or something season. Uh, and what, Pollock does have the contract. That's the one thing he really has going for him. But I, if I had to choose between Pollock or Peterson, I'm going to go Peterson. Especially I got that first base eligibility as well. I can slot him in a corner position if need be or whatever. So... I've always been a fan of Pollock, but it's a, getting to be a tough situation there. As long as Peterson's still on the roster, I'll take Peterson. I keep wondering how this could play out a different way. And the only theory that I've come up with, and I put this out there before, is Gavin Lux going down to AAA. Because if that happens, Max Muncy moves from first to second. Mm-hmm. Cody Bellinger moves from the outfield to first base. Maybe they play Mookie in center. Maybe they play Pollock in center. But that would create a spot in the outfield that would open up that playing time, like through that sort of trickle down where Lux gets burned. And I just, I have a hard time buying into that because I think Lux is really good. I think they want him to be a fixture in their lineup. If they hold Lux and play Lux frequently, that's where things are really dicey, unless, of course, Jock gets traded. If Jock gets traded, then there we are. It, Pollock's ADP will jump if they were to find another trade for Jack Peterson, by the way, but I think he's still going to be cheap even if that happens. I'm still perplexed how the Angels nixed that deal. I don't care how long it took. It seemed like they were, they were winning that deal. That was a tremendous win for them, getting a, getting a picture that they could use in their rotation or in long relief, getting a player like Peterson to add into that lineup. But I, look, I think the only thing I don't like about Gavin Lux entering this year is his slot is projected slot in the batting order. If he's batting eighth, it's just really hard to live in the National League in the eighth slot, but there's a lot to like for this kid's future. I'm trying to figure out too, like within that range of outcomes, which I think does include time at AAA, even though he doesn't need it. Just Kyle Kyle Tucker is the perfect example of a player that this time last year I didn't see him spending a good chunk of the year in AAA, and it happened because the Astros had a lot of depth. The same situation applies to the Dodgers right now. But within that range of outcomes, if you take Gavin Lux and you bring him around to the top of the order, it kind of makes sense. So you could do that. You could go Lux, Betts, Muncie, or actually you go Lux, Betts, Bellinger, Turner, Muncie, Seager, something along those lines. Mm -hmm. That's a loaded lineup up top. I like that a lot. You could do that, and you're balancing lefties and righties effectively. Like they let off Jock Peterson a lot last year, and yeah, maybe you just want to max out PAs for Betsy lead off a righty now because you can do it. I just think there's a path where Gavin Lux can actually hit higher in the order. That's what makes him such a fascinating player at pick 150 or pick 140 if he's getting pushed up a little bit. Is that he could end up being in the top third of the lineup as a table setter or one of the best lineups in the NL. Or he could end up playing less than half a season with the Dodgers because they have so much depth. Like that's a crazy range of outcomes for a player, and it's just a question of is it worth the risk at the price? I don't know. As someone who was burned by Kyle Tucker everywhere, I think I'm I'm very careful to not have Gavin Lux across the board on my teams this year, just knowing that it could go wrong, even though he has the skills to make it go right. No, I think that's, you know, it's something that you can put up good points here. And I think him, if you put him in that in that two slot, uh, you'd see his stock go really high. I think a Mookie, Lux, like Bellinger at third, 
is really an ideal batting order for them. I think that makes a lot more sense than Muncie and Turner at two and three. Like Muncie's a nice player. I just I think you could you could do a better thing at the top, maybe going lefty, righty, lefty, mm-hmm. having Mookie hit second instead of having him lead off. But again, I understand why you don't want to max out his playing his playing time as well. A couple Tigers pop up as maybe cheap sources of run production. CJ Crone and Jonathan Scope. I mean, these are two guys who are going to get more playing time, at least in the first four months while they're with the Tigers. They're going to get a better lineup placement in Detroit than they would have had with contenders. Crone's stat cast numbers with the Twins were actually really good. I mean, last season, he was sixth out of 250 qualified hitters in barrel rate. Like, that's a ton of power. So, yeah, the move to Detroit's a little bit more difficult in terms of the environment, but there's probably more to like than to dislike when it comes to CJ Crone at this price, isn't there? Yeah, the, I think the prices, I think the price points are both good for both these players, profitable. It's just, you know, Comerica Park and, you know, where home runs go to die. I mean, like a guy like Nick Castellanos, we like him a hell of a lot more that he's not in the Tigers anymore. I, I know Kron's got that prolific power that, you know, as you mentioned, the stat cast, everybody looks at it. So for their price, I got no problem with it, especially if you need that extra, you need another first baseman or that corner guy. And, you know, you're looking down here. Uh, I, CJ's a, a fine fit, and so is Scoop. If you look at the numbers for Jonathan Scope, the projections are really good. 250 to 260 batting average, like 257 is the low, 262 is the high. Again, looking at his Fangraphs page for multiple views. Uh, 24 home runs is the lowest home run projection. That's in 134 games. It comes from Ariel Cohen's system, ATC. Uh, 26 from Steamer, so a lot of consistency there. And you're looking at 70 maybe 80 RBIs and probably mid-60s to 70 runs scored. That's basically the same projection we just talked about for Brian Anderson. Mm -hmm. And in the case of Scope, you get him at second base, so you get him at a position that actually falls off quite a bit, and you get about a 100-pick discount like for the same projection. I'm I'm in on, on Scope at that price. Yeah, I don't see like why not. There really isn't a downside, and... Even in that park, he's going to provide power. You know, these these guys on bad teams are still going to drive in runs, score runs, hit home runs, and they're going to play half their games away from their home park as well. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Uh, a couple other just older players who I think still have something left in the tank. Kyle Seeger, ADP around 340. It's really, he's going to play a lot. He's going to drive in runs. He's going to score runs. Batting average isn't going to be great. We know that at this point. I mean, 249, 221, 239 now the last three seasons. Uh, but he walks a little bit, puts enough balls in play to rack up some RBIs. And I think because of where he's going to hit in that Seattle lineup, you're going to get counting stats pretty similar to Jonathan Scope, actually, just with a lower sort of batting average. So keep him in mind. And then Yoannis Cespedes. I'm just curious. You know this team very well, Matt. <laughs> like, how much can he play? Because as I've said a few times in recent weeks, like he's been an above-average player pretty much every year he's been in the big leagues. It's just a matter of the lost time, missing all of last season, and having injuries take away significant portions of both 2017 and 2018 as well. Yeah, look, I am a Mets fan. I just can't be op- optimistic about his playing time. Uh, they reworked the contract. I think he's ideally a DH right now. Because you put him out there in the field, you make him run on the bases, it's going to get scary. 
So I, I like what I'm seeing, you know, in the batting cages and all that. The guy can hit. I'll never doubt that. But I think he's uh, become the prototypical DH now. So he really needs a trade to the AL. And kind of in my opinion. I mean, I, I just I look. It's encouraging right now, but. You know, when you get out there and you got to play in the field and all that, I, I think it might be a little too taxing. I don't know. If Maybe he's I'm... still there on opening day, he's just going to wreck playing time for somebody else. Like that's, I mean, again, I I, I like him from a skills standpoint. I think the, the the health grade has to be an F for pretty obvious reasons. Uh, but I'm just looking at that and saying, wow, okay. So JD Davis gets squeezed there. Uh, if Jeff McNeil's playing third base, then Davis can't play a lot there. If Cano's not getting a lot of days off, then you don't have an option at second for McNeil. You start to figure it out, and you're like, oh, okay, well, Cespedes is going to play some, but that just means J.D. Davis goes from four or five starts a week to maybe two or three some weeks when the full complement of outfielders are healthy. And that would be a shame, Chris. I, I, think, I think the bat's real with J.D. Davis. Uh, you know, Brody Van Wagen, we all know about the big trade with the Cano Diaz, but that was a really good move, uh, putting JD Davis on this team. And I think the bat will be even better this year. Let's talk about cheap sources of batting average before we sign off. Uh, Gio Urshela came up a bit earlier. He does some other things, of course, too. I think part of the reason I wanted to put him in the cheap average category, though, is because he hit. 314 last season, 21 homers to go with it, 73 runs, 74 RBIs, and that was in just 476 plate appearances. So it was a great offensive season. Miguel Duhar is back in the fold. Luke Voigt's healthy at first base, so things start to get crowded pretty quickly when you look at the first base or when you look at the infield and the DH situation with the Yankees. How much of your concern about Urshela is skills driven, and how much of it is just role-driven considering the alternatives the Yankees now have available? I mean, I'm expecting a pullback from last season. I think, you know, I don't know if he's this good as of an offensive player, but he's exceptional with the glove. And on a team that's got his loaded lineup as the Yankees, you know, his glove can play there. So I, I don't think he's going to cater, but uh, I don't think it's going to be a, a repeat of last year. And he... Like a guy like Yandy Diaz, I'd rather have over Gio Urshela. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, it's it's pretty close. I think the problem with Diaz, too, is playing time kind of becomes a problem. So they're, they're like parts in terms of just worrying about the role. But I, I'd say this about Diaz. I think at least Diaz has first, third eligibility. And I think that ceiling, that Diaz uh, has a higher ceiling because we're starting to see the launch angle improve with him, and nobody's doubting that guy's power. You look at those arms and stuff. So that would be my... I'd rather go for the ceiling here. Yeah, the plate skills are good, and last year, as you mentioned, launch angle improved. He's able to really get into that power for the first time. It was always weird. You'd look back, and you'd see pictures of the guy. You'd see him get called up for the Indians. You'd look at him, and he's like, well, why isn't he hitting for more power? And he was just driving the ball to the ground. He's always had good plate skills, too. Sub-20% K rates at every significant stop he's ever made. He had four games at AAA in 2015 where he got up over 20%, but it was four games. Like doesn't matter. Uh, so I, I think Yandy Diaz is pretty interesting at his price as well. Uh, some more cheap batting average. Potentially, Daniel Murphy, he's one of only 15 players with an average over 300 
since the start of 2017. Again, minimum 500 plate appearances combined over those three seasons. But Murphy was hitting with a splint on his hand at one point in Colorado last season. He gets the age tax, too, where because he's going to be 35 on April 1st, people don't necessarily like him that much. Uh, but 279 last year, probably the low end of what he would do with a with a typical season in Colorado. And again, factoring in that injury, I think we get a bit of a bounce back from him this season in Colorado. I think the only real question, as we've had throughout this show, is playing time. If they decide to play some younger guys over him, that could be an issue. But if he's their primary first baseman, I think he ends up being a nice value pick around pick 275. Yeah, I'm I'm uh, in total agreement with you. That finger issue happened early in the season. If you remember last year at this time, everybody was head over heels for Daniel Murphy playing in Coors Field. And that injury kind of sabotaged his season. And I think, you know, if he's healthy enough and can stay on the field, that's my main concern. I think, you know, a 280 is is the minimum he'd hit. I think he's more of a still a 300 hitter, uh, you know, and he can do so many other things. That ballpark just is tailor-made for him. So definitely a guy at whatever, 275-ish, that I think is a very intriguing player. The stat cash page people are going to look at because they're going to say, well, he didn't hit the ball hard and all this. Again, the injury to the finger last year. And Coach Field cures a lot of ills. And this guy, as you stated, he can flat out hit the ball. Yeah, I'm I'm in on Daniel Murphy. First base only for 2020. Probably not going to play oh, enough of the yeah. other positions to pick him up. So that's the real, like, that's the only drawback I can think of is you got to use him either at the corner spot or throw him in as a utility. But, but the Rockies are known to love veteran players, and he's making, what, like $12 million this year? So I think they're going to roll him out there. They were rolling Mark Reynolds out year after year. So Yeah, and there's a lot more left in the tank here. I mean, they've got a couple of right-handed options. They could play Ian Desmond as a platoon option with him. Josh Fuentes, I don't really see that. Ryan McMahon's also a lefty, so there's just not really a lot there to threaten his playing time unless someone else starts playing first base kind of unexpectedly. So I think you're going to get a good bit of playing time as long as Daniel Murphy is healthy. Uh, last player we're going to talk about for cheap batting average is Howie Kendrick. Right around pick 350. And I realize we're looking at ADPs from a 12-team league and in a 12-team league as a utility type guy, maybe he's not going to play enough. And that's part of the reason why people are staying away. Uh, but I got an email recently from someone who basically said, did last season just not happen? Like, Howie Kendrick is so cheap for a guy that has hit 325 since 2017. Again, he missed most of 2018 with an injury. He was 19th out of 250 qualified players in barrel rate last season, too. So he's not just cheap average with nothing else to go with it. It's not a, a David Fletcher or Hanser Alberto type player. It's, you know, 325 with some punch that can go with it. Eligible at multiple spots as well. Uh, what kind of league do you have to be in? to draft Howie Kendrick? Does it have to at least be a 15-teamer? I mean, are you comfortable taking him there and using him as kind of a, an extra guy to fill in when the when the schedule lines up right? Yeah, I think the 15-teamer is is the correct format for Howie Kendrick. Look, last season was awesome. As you said, I think it's first base and second base eligibility. Though the Nationals did go out and sign like everybody, Castro, Cabrera, Thames. They re-signed uh, Zimmerman. But... They use him correctly. I don't think you want to see him getting 500 at-bats. 
you know, in, in that range of, say, 400 is optimal for him. I mean, he's, what, 36, 37 years old? So the bat will continue to play, but I think the mat, the management of his usage is key here, and he does have a role in 15-team leagues, especially when you can split up the weeks. I, I, I think that becomes the optimal situation. I think the key to making a player like that work is that he has to have eligibility at more than one spot, mm-hmm. and Kendrick already has that. Now, you, you can also look for players who are going to play new positions and add it in season, but Kendrick begins with first base and second base eligibility, so you can use him at those two spots. You can use him corner. You can use him middle. I think having corner and middle options is really important as you're looking to shuffle things around. I mean, minor injuries pop up, favorable schedules pop up, and you want to take advantage of those to the best of your ability. I think in a 12-team mixer, I understand why he's kind of on the outside looking in, just because three starts a week and then PAs off the bench aren't necessarily enough. But there's going to be stretches where some of those other old infielders are hurt. Kendrick's playing time is going to tick up, and he might have some temporary value in more shallow formats, kind of a, a patch player, situationally speaking, that you can use for a little while and then move on from him in those more shallow formats. Yeah, no, I'm, I think you know that's just the way. The 12 team, there's just... There's just too many players out there on on waiver wires and stuff. But as you said, there will be a stretch where he's maybe relied on uh, more often or a, a, a consistent basis where he can be very usable in that format. But the 15 team just seems perfect to me. All right. Anybody else that kind of catches your eye late as a possible good source of batting average? Like if Jesse Winker had a, a better path to playing time at pick 350, I think he's actually a really good hitter. I'm just staying away from kind of fringy starters in the Reds outfield for the time being. Yeah, and look, I'm still a Jesse Winker uh, believer fan. Hopefully there is a trade where he gets to a team where he can actually play every day, give it a shot, a a realistic true shot versus left-handers. I don't think the Reds have really ever given him that. And I, I think the bat, we haven't seen the best of his bat yet. Jose Martinez is kind of in the same boat in Tampa Bay. Like, I think he's a good source of batting average. He offers some power, but if he's a small side platoon corner outfielder, occasionally mostly DH, that's just not going to play outside of the weeks when they run into more lefties than usual. Well, the problem with Martinez is that he's got, it's just another team that has – they have so many outfielders and so many DHs. Uh, I know he was at first base the other day with Choi when he was – they had on Twitter, Choi was dancing to – I forget what song it was. <laughs> but I, I can see him eventually, you know, if Choi stumbles, you got Nate Lowe who I think was playing third base the other day or taking ground as third – so it's a very crowded thing, but yes, a, a player that we know can hit. He's in the right league now. It's just unfortunate, you know. They signed the other guy who's a D. You know, I don't know. They just got. It seems like they have so many DHs, so many outfielders, and like three first basemen. Yeah, they they do <laughs> experiment a little bit more with defensive alignments, though, than a lot of teams. Where I don't know if I would have expected Avisail Garcia to play center field. Last year, the Rays tried that. They moved guys like Nate Lowe around more than expected. That could open up playing time in the event of an injury or if something sticks better than expected with the the attempt to put on a different glove and to try something new. 
That is going to wrap things up for this episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. If you're not already a subscriber to The Athletic, get 40% off a subscription at theathletic.com slash podcast. As I mentioned at the top, if you got a minute to leave us a nice rating and review, we would greatly appreciate that. You can find Matt on Twitter at CTM Baseball. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. For Matt Medica, I'm Derek Van Riper. We're back on Wednesday with Under the Radar. Thank you.